0: Let's pray together again as we begin. Father, I personally thank you so much that the blood was applied to my heart and this day in heaven is applied through the intercession of the Lord Jesus on our behalf so that we stand clean this morning. No matter how we sinned yesterday or this morning, as we rely upon him. And his wonderful blood, we are clean. And so we come into this hour with a sense of tremendous anticipation that you are not frowning at us. But your smile is broad and you love the truth and you love your son and you love marriage and you love manhood and you love womanhood. And you have appointed ways for us to live that are so good for us and such a glory to your son. And we long for your Holy Spirit to draw near and to unfold these things for us and to apply them to our hearts so that from now until the day we die, this hour together will make a difference for your great name. So come and do that, I ask through Jesus Christ, your Son, Father. Amen. I gave the overarching title to these five talks, Manhood, Womanhood, and God. And I put God in there because I want the dominant sense to be that there's no point in just talking about what people think about manhood and what people think about womanhood because there are a thousand thoughts and a thousand opinions in the world. What really matters is what God thinks about manhood and womanhood, what God appointed for maleness and femaleness. That's the only thing that matters in the end. Other things may seem in the short run attractive, but they will leave you in pain at the end if they are not of God. And so when I focus in this morning now on marriage, I want us to think about it in relationship especially to God. I love the title of Jeffrey Bromley's book on marriage. It's called Marriage and God. I like titles like that. Just straight out, simple, what matters is what God thinks about marriage. Let me begin with a quote from the most recent book that I have been dipping into on the other side of the issue from where I am, the Christian feminist side as opposed to what I like to call the complementarian side. The book is called After Eden, edited and partly written by Mary Stuart Van Leeuwen, Uh, At Calvin College, she said, quote, Jesus insisted on monogamy and assigned the same rights and responsibilities to both husbands and wives. Close quote. Now, I think that's profoundly wrong. Profoundly misleading, at least. It may be technically accurate, but it gives the impression, number one, that Jesus addressed the issue of whether men, husbands, bear the responsibility for a unique kind of leadership that a woman does not bear in the family. She gives the impression Jesus addressed that issue, and secondly, she gives the impression he answered it, no. He thought about it. Should husbands have a unique and special responsibility for leadership in the home? And Jesus answered it, no. That's what this statement says. Now, that's wrong. The problem is, Jesus didn't address that question. At least as far as I know, and I've read the Gospels hundreds of times, he did not ask the question. Should husbands bear a unique and special responsibility for leadership and provision and protection that's different from the responsibility that the wife has? He didn't ask the question, and therefore he didn't answer the question. To answer that question, where do you go? Well, you go to the parts of the Bible that do address the question. And the part of the Bible that addresses the question most clearly is Ephesians 5. And so if you brought a Bible along this morning... I invite you to turn to Ephesians 5 with me and we'll read verses 21 to 33 and then we'll try to unpack the unique and different responsibilities. They're not the same that husband and wives have. I'll start reading at verse 21. In Ephesians 5, be subject to one another in fear of Christ. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is also head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be subject to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to also love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The mystery, this mystery, is great. But I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each individual among you also love his own wife, even as himself. And let the wife see to it that she respect her husband. Now, the place I want to jump in here with you is verse 31. It's a quote from Genesis 2.24. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Then the next verse is Paul's comment about that quotation from Genesis 2.24. And what he says about it is, this mystery... Now, don't miss what this is. He just quoted Genesis 2.24. Man and woman come away from their parents, cleave to one another, become one flesh. And he says, this mystery is profound, is great. And then he says, and I am saying... It, the coming of a wife and a husband together to form one flesh, it, marriage, refers to Christ and the church. Now, question, why is marriage called a mystery here? Quotes Genesis 2.24, and he stands back and he looks at it and he says, this mystery of a man and a woman coming together to form one flesh Leaving and cleaving is great. This is a great mystery. Now, if you've, if you've study biblical studies, you might have learned that mystery in, in Paul's usage does not mean something you can't understand. Mystery means something that has been concealed for an age and is now revealed. Mysteries are things revealed in the New Testament that for long years, decades, centuries have been concealed so that their full import and meaning is not known. And so what I think he's saying is. When people read Genesis 224, they saw a meaning that was a true meaning. But there is a mystery here that is now being revealed since Christ has come and is embracing like a husband, his church, his wife that you can know about Genesis 2.24 that you didn't know before. Namely, Genesis 2.24 says marriage is about Christ. Marriage is about the union of Christ and the church. Now, there were hints at that in the Old Testament. God is portrayed as the husband of Israel. And uh, the separation when she went into exile was like a kind of, Legal separation, but then in Hosea, you learn he will not divorce his wife and he brings her back from exile. So there were hints that the people of God were the wife of God and God was the husband of the people. But you didn't know anything about the Messiah and the body of Christ yet and the way he would die for her. Those kinds of things were only pointed at and hinted at in the Old Testament. But now in Ephesians 5, Paul is saying this mystery of what marriage is really all about from the beginning, the way God designed it, I am opening up to you so that you can see. And the essence and bottom line meaning of marriage is to be a witness, a revelation, a parable, a drama for the world to see the way Jesus loves his body and the body loves Jesus. That's the meaning of marriage. And that's why I entitled this whole session, uh... Manhood, womanhood, and God. Marriage is about God. It's about God. This isn't, this isn't about divorce this morning, but I can't help but, but insert here that the bottom line tragedy of divorce is not the children and not the man and not the woman. It's about God. When a divorce happens, a lie happens about God. God does not divorce his people. Marriage is meant to tell people about God and his people. When a divorce happens, a lie happens in the world about God. It's a God issue. Every time there's a divorce, whether it's a Christian couple or a non-Christian couple, and that's why it's a tragedy ultimately. Of course, it ruins people's lives often, kids, but God is the issue. It's a God thing. The deepest meaning of marriage is the glory of Christ in the way he loves his church and the glory of the church in the way she finds fulfillment in her husband, Jesus Christ. Now, once you see that, verses 31 and 32, then as you go back up and reread the passage, the issue of roles becomes tremendously important. And the point is not that, that when I say roles... Roles for husband, roles for wife. Please don't misunderstand me. If you were here last night, you'll know better. But if you weren't, when I say roles here, I don't mean a script to follow in detail, as though once you learn what a Christian husband is, then you know all about dishes and vacuuming and checkbooks and car repair and lawn cutting and diaper changing. That is not true. Okay? The variety of forms that these roles work themselves out into are, are infinite almost. When I talk about roles, I'm talking about a, an essential way of relating to each other that is not the same for wife and husband. And I think when you key in now on the roles assigned here, you'll see that. It's not a detailed script. It's a fundamental conviction about how you key off of Jesus and his church. In verses 23 to 25, what you get is a description of how husbands relate to wives in keying off of Christ and wives relate to husbands in keying off of the church. Let's look at this. It says, wives, your distinctive role as a wife is to key off of the way the church should relate to Christ. Verse 24, let's read that. As the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be subject in everything to their husbands. So in this parable, in this image of Christ and the church, the wife zeroes in on the the wife, the church, and she says, that's my calling, to be the church to Christ in this drama. Husbands, in verse twenty three are called to key off of Christ husbands. The husband is to love it is to be the head of the wife as Christ as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Then verse twenty five, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now we can say some negative things right off the bat about headship here. Headship is not the right to command or control. It's the responsibility to love like Jesus. Say that again. Headship here is not a right to command and control a wife. It's a command to love like Jesus, to lay down your life for your wife in servant leadership. And we can say something about submission here. Submission is not a slavish, coerced, cowering here. That's not the way Christ wants the church to relate to him at all. Christ did not come to save a daughter. He came to save a wife for himself. He wants the church to be free, willing, glad, refining, strengthened. So the keys here of Christ and the church become very crucial in understanding these sometimes explosive and controversial words, headship and submission. Ephesians 5 guards against the abuses of headship and guards against the debasing of submission. Now, let me give you a definition. I think so far, just like last night in the church, I think I can now give you a definition of headship and submission that flows out of what we've seen so far. Headship is the divine calling of a husband to take primary responsibility for Christ-like servant leadership, protection, and provision in the home. Now, If you say, well, where are you getting those three words, leadership, protection, and provision? Let me just point you. We won't go into detail here, but let me just point you. I'm getting the word leadership from the word head and its counterpart, submission. I'm getting the word protection from the verse that says he loved her and gave himself for her. When Christ died for the church, he saved the church. He protected the church from sin and Satan. He defeated the enemy, Satan, when he died on the cross. So I'm getting this whole idea of a protective element from the protecting work of the cross that was done for the bride of Christ. And I'm getting the word provision from verse 29 where it says that Christ nourishes and cherishes the church, his own body nourishes her, provides for her. And so headship is the divine calling of a husband to take primary responsibility. Please underline the word primary because there are ways in which the woman feels tremendous responsibility as a partner for the husband to make all these things happen. Leadership for the children, sharing in the provision for the family when she works, and protective dimensions when it falls to her to be protective to the children and sometimes to her husband. But the husband has a primary responsibility. When God comes and knocks on the door when there's dysfunction in the house and the door is open, he's gonna say, is the man of the house home? He will call the man to account just like he did in the garden. Adam, where are you? What has happened In this collapse of my order in the garden, Adam, where are you? Not Eve, where are you? She comes second when God calls them to account and holds them responsible for the collapse in the garden. So there's a primary responsibility here for leadership and protection and provision. Here's the meaning of submission, as I see it in the text. Submission is the divine calling of a wife to honor and affirm and nourish that husband's leadership and to help him carry it through according to her gifts. A calling of a wife to honor and affirm and nourish that leadership and to assist him in carrying it into reality by using her gifts, which will differ from family to family if she can't do math, she won't do the checkbook. If he can't do math, she will do the checkbook. That's what I mean by carrying it through together in terms of of gifts. Now, let me spell out some practical implications that I see here. Uh, first would be in verse 25, husbands are called to love their wives as Christ loved the church, and that simply revolutionizes Leadership, men. If you came to Bryan College and you contemplate coming to marriage with a certain view of headship and leadership that you saw in your father or an uncle or a grandfather, it could be very wrong. Be Very wrong. Very harmful. You better put that on the shelf and go to the Bible and ask, Jesus, what do you mean? How did you lead the disciples? How do you lead the church? And his answer will be, I died for her. I laid my life down for her. I bound myself with a towel and I washed her feet. You may not have seen that in your father, the uncle, the grandfather. And therefore, you may have some deeply ingrained habits in your relationship with women that need to be profoundly Changed by the power of the Holy Spirit to be the kind of husband God would call you to be. Let me say a word about submission. Um, submission uh, is out of reverence to Christ, verse 21, which means it never puts the husband in the place of Christ. Get this really clear in your head. Both men and women because men could could exalt themselves in a way totally inappropriately here and wives could tend to exalt their husbands in a way inappropriately that would jeopardize the unique standing of Christ over both husband and wife. The wife submits to her husband out of reverence for Christ who is over her husband. So a wife has an allegiance to Christ that is prior to and superior to and governing all her relationship to her husband, which qualifies this submission profoundly. For example, she will never, ever follow this husband into sin because her primary allegiance to Jesus will keep her from sinning. And if the husband says, let's go do group sex or let's steal or let's drink or let's lie on our tax forms, she will say, I can't be a part of that. I love you. I want to honor you as our leader. I can't. I have another leader. OK. All calls to submission, children to parents, wives to husbands, citizens to governments, uh, churches to elders, all of those are Qualified and not absolute by the lordship of Jesus Christ over children and wives and church members and citizens. Peter. To the Sanhedrin. We must obey God rather than man. That qualification runs right through every subordinate relationship in the Christian community. So make that clear. When I talk about submission, I do not mean putting the husband in the place of God Almighty to whom the wife owes her allegiance utterly and absolutely. Submission does not mean surrendering thought, independent thought. The reason I say that, I wish we had time to talk about 1 Peter 3. The whole premise of 1 Peter 3, 1 to 7 is that you have a Christian wife and a non-Christian husband. If submission meant surrendering thought, then the wife would say, Honey, what do you think about who the true God is? And he'd say, The true God is Moloch, or the true God is Caesar. And she'd say, Oh, okay, you must be right, because you're my husband. The whole text is premised on the fact that she doesn't do that. She says, Who do you think the true God is? And he says, Aphrodite. And she says, I think you're wrong. I think it's Jesus. I love you. I want to be a faithful wife to you, but you're wrong. Submission does not mean there is no influence over the husband. The whole premise of 1 Peter 3 is she's trying to win her husband. She's trying to change her husband to be a believer. But there is a way to do it that is governed by the whole concept of submission and leadership. You read First Peter and you, you hear about that. And I would say again, submission doesn't follow from incompetence. I'll come back to this in a minute. A lot of people raise the question about, well, wait a minute. How can you say that he has a special responsibility for leadership when, in fact, she may be more competent in all kinds of ways that relate to leadership? I'll come to kind of that in a minute. Let me say another word about submission. I call it um, an inclination of the will to endorse her husband's leadership and a disposition of spirit to affirm his leading. The reason I, I say disposition of spirit and inclination of will is simply because there are instances when the husband's leadership may be very foolish. What does a wife do? When the lead that the husband is taking seems to her manifestly stupid. Something he wants to buy. Travel, use of money, treatment of the children. What should she do? Um, let, let's use Noel and me for an example here. Um, Noelle is sitting right here in the front, my, my wife. And so you can check out all these things with her to see. I have, I have a control on my teaching here so that I can't just mouth off and say things that I'm not held accountable for. Suppose I'm about to make a decision that she feels to be profoundly misguided. I'm just going bonkers or whatever it is here. And what should she do? Here, here's the way I would put these words into her mouth, okay? She would say... Uh, Johnny, I know you've thought a lot lot about this, and uh, I love it when you take the initiative to uh, lead us and take the responsibility for these things, but I really don't have peace about what we're about to do as a family. And uh, I really think we need to talk some more, and could we do that maybe tonight? Now, I don't regard that kind of conversation as insubordinate. Now, if you were to say to me, do you ever do that with Jesus? Does the church ever do that with Jesus? I would say, be, be real careful here. There is a huge difference between a husband and Jesus, and the main one is fallibility. All right? Jesus never, ever makes a mistake. The church, therefore, never has to use language like that to Jesus and say, I think you're wrong about money. I think you're wrong about lust. Can I suggest another way? But you know what? Jesus does invite prayer. Do you ever think about that? Prayer is involvement of you in getting him to do things. And if the if the Almighty, who is infallible, invites prayer from his bride, tell me things you'd like me to do. How much more should a husband who is fallible invite prayer? That is Could we do this? Could we talk? You might be wrong. But there is a spirit. There's a spirit about that. If you buy into what I'm saying, the husband's role is as a primary responsibility. There's a spirit that will endorse him in that, even while you're asking him to reconsider some decision that he's about to make. When a man senses a special God-given responsibility for spiritual life in the family. Say, let's have devotions, or let's get to church on time, or let's pray at meals. When he senses a special responsibility to make that happen. When a man senses a special responsibility to steward the money of the family well. Let's talk about how we spend our money. When he senses a special responsibility to provide for the family and keep the family safe. He is not doing that in an authoritarian or an autocratic or a domineering or a bossy or oppressive or abusive way. Headship is not that. It is loving leadership. And when people press us towards gender-blind, sex-leveling ways of relating... What they're really doing, this is the bottom line issue for me, is they're calling into question a way that God has appointed for Christ and his church to be presented to the world. If the husband is to be like Christ and if the wife is to be like the church in the way they relate and people come along and say, no, they should be blind to their differences. There shouldn't be any sense of primary responsibility for leadership and any sense of unique calling to endorse and affirm and follow and, and nurture and say yes to that leadership, then the whole picture of Christ and the church collapses. Christ and the church are not parallel. It's a God issue. Now let me turn to answering just a few objections here. And tonight, by the way, what I'll do, I'm not sure just what proportion of the time, but maybe most of the time tonight, maybe all the time, I'll think. I just want to answer questions that you have, okay? So if, if yesterday and this morning and last night you had questions, uh, I'll just stand down here tonight and uh, I'll let you dictate the agenda tonight. So if I miss yours, then you bring it back tonight. But here are three objections that I get most often to what I've just taught. Number one, these come right out of my experience. Husband comes to me. I have one in mind right now in my church. And he says, look, John, I hear all this talk about me being the leader. Look, I graduated from eighth grade. I do not have a high school diploma, though I'm working on my GED. She's a graduate of high school and has a little bit of college. She's so good with words. I'm terrible with words. You're telling me I'm supposed to be the leader. I don't think I can do it. You tell me I'm supposed to lead in devotions. I try to read the passage, and my tongue gets so tied up that the children snicker. Now, what would you say to a husband like that? Would you say, oh, yeah, you really can't be a leader because you're incompetent. She's got more competency. Leadership is a competency issue, so take it, woman, and leave it, man. you know what I said to him? Let's call him Jim again. Jim is my pseudonym here. I said, Jim, look, I I do not mean that you have to be better than Mary, better reader, better with math, better with language. That's not what I mean when I call you to leadership. Here's what I mean. Tonight, I got three kids tonight. Uh, about eight o'clock, just before the youngest bedtime. Get the family together. Just say, hey, kids, Mary, come on in time for devotions. And then you all sit down and then take your Bible and you say, we're going to just read a little bit of scripture here and then pray. OK, Mary, why don't you read a, a paragraph for us? And you're done, Jim. You're done. That's leadership. Leadership is let's. Let's do it. Let's do it. Women, this woman who's very competent, she's part, leader in our church, she's articulate, she's intelligent more than he is, wants that from him. She doesn't want to be, because she's competent, the one who always has to say, can we read the Bible? Can we pray at meals? Can we get to church on time? She wants him to take that leadership and an eighth grade education can do it for a college graduate. It can. It's a let's do it, kids. Let's do it here. Read. She's good at it. I'm not good at it. Let her read. And, you know, if he's humble and he's secure in Christ, he can even say to his kids, I'm a lousy reader. Mom's a great reader. Let's let mom read. And then as the kids get better, they can read and maybe he'll get better. So that's objection number one. I don't buy that leadership is a competency based issue. It's a personhood issue, and men in their gut feel they ought to do it, and women in their gut want it done in loving and humble and non-coercive, abusive, manipulative ways. Objection number number two. What about this issue of, of mutual subjection? Verse 21 says, Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. And usually when I hear feminists preach on this passage, they read that verse, they slide over the rest, and then they preach mutuality. Now, just ask yourself. Is Christ and the church a mutual relationship of submission? Got your answer in your head now? I think it is. Christ submitted to the church in that he died for her. He lowered himself underneath her and was crushed by her sin that she might be exalted. That's a kind of submission of of a most profound and wonderful nature. The church also submits to Jesus. How? How? By endorsing his lordship and leadership and saying yes to it and getting behind him and joining him in his enterprise in the world. But now I ask you this, are those the same way of submitting? Can you parallel those and say just because there is mutuality of submission, there's sameness of submission? No way. Not in a million years. Jesus and the church are not interchangeable roles. The kind of submission that Jesus exercised was real and loving and profound. The kind of submission that the church exercises is real and loving and profound. They're not the same. And therefore, you can't take verse 21 and make it wipe out the meaning of verses 22 to 33. What it does is shape the meaning. Guards the meaning from misinterpretation, puts borders around the meaning. There's a professor who wrote a very significant book uh, on the feminist side of things, and he said that mutual submission is totally incompatible with hierarchical relations of leadership and submission. But then a few pages later in his book, he wrote this. The church thrives on mutual submission, mutual subjection in a spirit led church. The elders must submit to the congregation in being accountable for their watch care. And the congregation submits to the elders in accepting their guidance. So here he is saying that in marriage, mutual submission cannot be compatible if you have a leader and a follower. And then he turns around and says, in the church, which thrives on mutual submission, you do have leaders and followers. That won't work. You can't have it both ways. You've got to either say. It'll work in marriage because it works in the church, or it won't work in the church because it doesn't work in marriage. Well, the Bible says it works in the church and it can work in marriage. When a husband loves like Christ and a wife loves like the church. Last objection, number three. Today, there are high-powered exegetical studies about whether kephale, head, means leader or means something like source. Source like source of a river the fountain head the head of a river is the source and and uh the authority uh, the the uh, life of the valley flows from the 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 head of the river and so the effort is made to diffuse the leadership dimension of this text by saying head means head of a river source now these technical technical uh articles are so technical that I know 99% of you will never read them. So how are you going to settle that issue? That's a big thing. How do lay people who don't spend 10 years in a Ph.D. program trying to figure out the meaning of Kefalei, how do you decide the meaning of the Bible so you can obey it? I really believe that everything God wants you to obey is plain enough for you to understand from the English text of the Bible, believe it or not. So let me just point you to how I think if I were in your place and I hadn't read any of these technical articles, I would try to solve that problem. I would go to the text and I would say, okay, let's suppose that they're right, that head means source. And then I would look at at this, I'd look at verse 29 to 30 here, where Christ is pictured as having a body, the church, his wife, and he's pictured as the head head. And uh, then I would ask, okay, if he's the head and he's the source, what does the body get from the head? What 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 does it get from the head? And I would notice in verse 29, it gets nourishment. He nourishes and cherishes the church. Why? Because the mouth is in the head. So when the mouth eats, the body gets food. So Christ is the source of nourishment. Okay, I can handle that. What else does the the body get from the head? Well, the eyes are in the head. And and so there's guidance and leadership and the ears are in the head. And so there's alertness and protection. You can hear danger coming. I'll say, okay, contextually. And if you don't import something from outside, contextually, even if head means source. It's the source of what? Leadership from the eyes. Nourishment from the mouth and alertness from the ears. And you're back where I am. Now, you may you may see a way to do it differently, to to somehow make head mean something different than implying leadership. I have not been able to see it, even when I try to give the benefit of the doubt to those who make head mean something different than authority or or leadership. So let me close now by simply reaffirming what I started with. Namely, marriage has to do with God. Marriage is a mystery. Please, if if you take away nothing else this morning, take this away. When you marry someday, if you marry, what God is calling you to is to live out a parable for the world of the kind of love that Christ has for his body and the kind of allegiance and love that the body has to Christ. And therefore, your calling in marriage is so high. It is so great. The world knows nothing of this. The world doesn't know why they're married in God's economy. God created marriage to tell something about God. Something about his son, something about his church, something about his covenant between the church and the son. And I just call you to live that out for your good and for God's glory. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, I ask that the marriages that may emerge in this room and many in the years to come, with people outside this room would be beautiful portrayals for our decaying culture of what you have ordained for man and wife and what you have ordained for your son and your church. Help me and Noel to be better at the way we portray the love of Christ and the allegiance of the church. For the sake of our children, for the sake of our church, for the sake of the world, Lord, do it, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.